Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 through 10. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud. You who have not been in labor, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent and let the curtains of your habitation be stretched out. Do not hold back, lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer, the God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. This is God's word. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come together today in a spirit of joy, friendship, fellowship, in a spirit of thankfulness. And at the same time, Lord, there are always the difficult things in our lives that we face. But may we remember today, Lord, that we do not face those things alone. That you have promised to be with us. That you are with us by your Holy Spirit for those who are trusting in you, trusting in Christ. And that your Spirit gives us power power that we do not have within ourselves, the power of God at work in our lives, the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Lord, we desire to serve you and follow you with our whole heart. And so may we understand more and be prompted to live for you more and more as we look forward to when Jesus, our King, comes again. In your name we pray. Amen. I want you to picture in your mind, if you could, the highest mountain that you've ever seen or the highest peak that you've ever been to. I think of these pictures that I'll see of Mount Fuji, or Mount Kilimanjaro, or Mount Rainier in Washington, and you see the, the peak you know, rising above everything else in the middle of the picture. 
And Isaiah chapters 53 through 55 could be, could be described as three mountaintops, uh, three mountaintops of God's promises. Each of those mountains are beautiful on their own, but when you go to the top of a mountain, then you can see even more beauty of God's creation. Have you ever been to uh, a place where you can see a range of mountains in the distance, maybe in western North Carolina, and it looks like all the peaks are you know, the same distance away if you're far away? But then as you get closer, as you drive, uh, we drove up to grand, up the top of Grandfather Mountain. That was, that was a, an experience, <laughs> you know, driving that twisting road up to the top. But as you drive closer to mountains, you realize that, well, there's one peak here, and then you go over that peak, and then you come down, and then there's another peak in the distance and further along. But from a distance, they all look the same. Well, that's a little bit like what it's like with prophecy in the Old Testament, that there is often an initial fulfillment of the prophecy, in the Old Testament, but then there's an ultimate fulfillment, a further fulfillment in Christ later on. And so as we look at these passages, we see not only the message that Isaiah was giving to God's people in his day, but we see also the ultimate fulfillment of that, that it points forward to Christ. And so each of these uh, chapters provides, describes God's provision for sinful mankind, but when we look at them together, we see much more of what God has given to his redeemed people. And so two introductory questions as we begin this message. One is, where does this chapter fit in the entire book of Isaiah? Where does chapter 54, where does it have its place? And then secondly, where does this period fit in the history of of the people of Israel. That's why I gave you that insert in the bulletin to help you kind of uh, get your mind's eye around, well, where, when is this taking place and where does it fit in the history of God's people? And then the third question, which uh, I won't spend a lot of time on, but I want to just give some initial thoughts, are what are the parallels then between the Old Testament Israelites and Christians in the church today? Now, that's a much debated question. Uh, It's a question of uh, what aspects of the Old Testament are continuous through the New Covenant, uh, the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and what aspects are discontinuous or different from the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. But where does this take place in the book of Isaiah? Well, chapters 40 through 55 is a large section declaring God's comfort to his people. If you turn back to Isaiah chapter 40... Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 3. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. So the first 39 chapters of Isaiah are prophecies of God's judgment, not only of the nations around the people of Israel, but also on the people of Israel because of their own sin. And so chapter 40 then starts this long section up through chapter 55 that is a message of comfort. Speak to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean, uh, well, it could, only, it could not only mean, I don't think, that they have received double 
uh, affliction for their sins, double punishment for their sins. But look at the beginning of the verse, that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. And so they have received double, they have received abundantly in, in pardoning, in forgiveness from the Lord as they return back to Jerusalem. And so it's a long section of God's uh, comfort to his people. In Isaiah chapter 55, it says, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Kids, if you ask your parents, when does the Bible talk about a free meal? Isaiah chapter 55, verse 1. But then look at verse 2. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourselves in rich food. It says the Lord will abundantly pardon. Isaiah chapter 55 verse 7. And so this long section, uh, chapters 40 up through 55, is a message of God's comfort and provision to his people, provided that we come to him with our whole heart, that we come to him with an open heart, recognizing our own sinfulness. Now, where does this take place in the story of the people of Israel? Well, uh, on, according to your handout, um, uh, the rough dates that Isaiah prophesied, he prophesied over the period of the reigns during parts of the reigns of four different kings, and that was approximately uh, 600, between 600 and 700 years before the coming of Christ. And so he declares the folly of the people trusting in idols, trusting in other nations for help. God's people are facing destruction, they're facing deportation, they're facing years of captivity. It is truly a low point, a point of hopelessness. Is there really any future? If you've lived in this country over the last 20 years and, you've, and you, were, you were born in, at any, any time in the, in the last century, you think, is there really a future? What is going on? Seems like things are just uh, disintegrating in different ways and becoming more hostile in many different ways. And so I think there is a question that is similar between ourselves and the Israelites, that have we rebelled so far that there is no return to God? That's a question that many of us may ask today as Christians, not only collectively as a church or as a, as a people in a particular country, but individually sometimes we sin and we ask, have I sinned so much that there is no return to God? Well, the message today is that my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. That's God's word for you today. That's God's word for me today. That we have not sinned so far that there is no return. When we come to God with an open heart and we say, Lord, I need your forgiveness. He pardons abundantly. Now, the third, the other question that I'm going to take just a minute to explain is, well, what are then are the parallels between the Old Testament Israelites and Christians in the church today? And, and I want to take just a minute to, 
to, to try and explain this. Of course, it's going to uh, generate some discussion, but I think it's a question because Israel is in the news. The nation of Israel is in the news much today. And so we have all these questions about, well, you know, what is going on? What are the parallels? What, what should the, the nation of Israel do? What should we as Christians in this country do? What, what uh, all of that. And, uh, and if you come back in two weeks, Pastor Ken will answer all those questions in Sunday school at 9.30. <laughs> no, but, um, but Ken has been very helpful to me. Uh, last week, he gave me a series of articles talking about the, the history of the, the nation of Israel. And even, uh, even if you look at the history of the word Palestine, uh, Palestine is a word that was used to describe both sides of the Jordan River. And over thousands of years in history, there have been uh, Jewish people, Arab people, people of other uh, descent, other religions living in that entire area. And so uh, when we see our news, uh, news blips, you know, those are often oversimplified uh, nuggets that, uh, that are hard uh, to digest without uh, realizing some of the complexity of some of the issues. Uh, but my particular view is that certain promises about the land remain for the Israelites, for the Jewish people. And in general, and, and uh, generally speaking, the, the spiritual promises given to us in the Old Testament, all of the spiritual promises that are given to the people of God in the Old Testament apply to Christians today. And so remember that the Old Testament is about God's chosen people from Genesis 12 onward, is about God's chosen people, about God's law, about their obedience and their disobedience to God's law, the interaction, and their interactions with the Gentiles, the other nations, and it is about God's response. The best three-word summary of Genesis 12 through the end of the Old Testament I ever heard was, they soon forgot. They soon forgot. And if you read the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is, you want to talk about a long sermon. The book of Deuteronomy is one long sermon by Moses. Remember the Lord your God. Remember the Lord your God. Remember the Lord your God. When you go into the land, don't forget the Lord your God. So you take an example, a, a particular a promise from the Old Testament. God says to Abraham, to your offspring, I will give this land. And so I think that that promise will still come to fulfillment. Now, the vast majority of Jewish people today are not believers in Jesus Christ as the Jewish Messiah. And therefore, they are still in rebellion against God spiritually, even though modern-day Israel as a nation can make decisions as a nation to defend what is the homeland of the Hebrew people. And so personally, I believe that God's promise to the Jewish people regarding the land will still come to fruition, but that does not mean that I agree with everything that the Israeli government does simply because I'm a Christian. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of nuance there. Now to take an example from the New Testament, if you look at the book of Galatians, chapter 3, here's an example of the continuity between uh, the Old Testament and the New Testament. Galatians chapter 3, verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, 
preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. And so we as Gentile believers today, as Christians today, are considered sons of Abraham. There's meaning to that song that maybe some of us learned in Sunday school. Father Abraham had many sons. Many sons had Father Abraham. And I am one of them. And so are you. So let's all praise the Lord. And then is it right hand, left hand? or Yeah. yeah. So there's meaning. There's significance in that. But then you go to a passage like 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, which says this. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not God's people, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. And so who was that written to? That was written to dispersed Christians in Asia Minor, to the elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia. And so we need to remember the context that that was written in. And I think it's a wrong interpretation and a short-sighted application of that text to say, well, we as Christians are a chosen race. And to import a, a word like race that has certain connotations in our day to overlay that on the biblical text. It would be wrong to say that we are chosen by God based on some physical characteristic or that we need to reinstitute the Old Testament law and the priesthood. We are a royal priesthood. What does that mean? That doesn't mean we reinstitute the Old Testament priesthood. We are a holy nation, a holy ethnos, a people belonging to God. Well, that does not mean that, we, that the country that we live in should necessarily be declared Christian or holy by the government. The purpose of that passage is to say, at the next verse, as the next verse says, you belong to God so that you may declare the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. What's your mission on Christmas Day? What's your mission on the day after Christmas and two days after Christmas? To proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Especially uh, if you have younger children, you can tell them, David was out in the fields when God called him to come back and they were, he was anointed king over Israel. Bethlehem is the city of David. David was probably out in the same fields that the shepherds were in when they received the news that Christ had been born. Bethlehem is, the meaning of the word is house of bread. And so Bethlehem is the place where Ruth and Naomi came back to after Naomi was widowed. And Ruth stayed with her, and they came back to Bethlehem, the house of bread, and were provided for by Boaz, who took Ruth and said, you can glean along the edges of the field so that you and your family can have something to eat. Amazing connections 
that we, our mission on Christmas Day is to proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So I think that's one error is misusing the Bible by reading modern day meanings of words on top of an ancient text which has its own context. The opposite error, which we see in our day often, is studying the original context of the Bible so exclusively that you end up ignoring the plain sense meaning of the word by focusing on an ancient detail which the biblical writers did not intend to focus on. And we could give uh, many examples of that, but uh, there's often in scholarly circles this impetus and this desire to, to find some secret nugget in the text and focus on uh, an archaeological detail or a, 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 a nugget about ancient culture about this or that detail and, and come up with some hermeneutical gymnastics or uh, exegetical gymnastics and uh, reinterpret the plain sense meaning of the text. And so those are two things that we need to be careful of. Okay, that was more than a few minutes. All right, but back to the previous question. Have we rebelled so far that there is no return to God? Is my sin too much to recover from? Hear today God's voice clearly. My steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed. The word steadfast love in Hebrew is the word chesed. Chesed. I like to say it. Got to get that guttural sound in there. Hesed means God's steadfast love. Some translations have it his loyal love, his loving kindness, or his loving faithfulness. And the meaning of that word is essentially when when one who owes you nothing gives you everything. God is not obligated to us at all. He is the creator. We are his creatures. And yet he has given us everything. Amen? Amen. And so the first picture we see in this text is the pain of separation and isolation. Look at the words there in Isaiah chapter 54. Uh, The pain of separation and isolation. Sing, O barren one, the children of the desolate one. It talks about the reproach of your widowhood, like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Why does Isaiah write down such raw graphic terms? Well, in ancient society, as as a general uh, principle, being barren was a stigma. Not being able to have children was a stigma. It was seen as a failure. It was seen as as lifeless. Uh, Hannah, uh, in the Bible, in the beginning of the book of 1 Samuel, had to suffer the insults of Peninnah. She was in isolated, she was isolated through circumstances she could not control. And as Christians today, we certainly need to be loving and tender and understanding for those uh, many people who want to have children and for whatever reason uh, cannot or not able to. But the reason those images are related to marriage are used is this, that the people of Israel are in a covenant with God. Their sins individually and collectively have separated them from their husband, Yahweh. They did not bear spiritual fruit as they were intended to bear. They were to remain faithful to God, and yet they did not. And so as a result, they forfeited God's protection. 
Ezekiel chapter 16 gives even a more graphic picture that the people of God were chosen by God as his bride, but they gave their love and affection to others. They sought protection in the arms of Egypt, in the arms of Assyria, in the arms of Chaldea. And God says, you shall have no other gods before me. So sin and idolatry is spiritual adultery. That's why those images are linked many times in Scripture. Isaiah chapter 57, just a couple of verses in a chapter later, a couple chapters later, Isaiah chapter 57. But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Verse 5, you who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts, of the rocks. Verse 8 Behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorial. For deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it. You have made it wide. And you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on nakedness. And so the prophet is talking about God's people going to idols, going to other lovers, giving their hearts to others besides God. Do we see our own adultery against God? The God who has given us everything, who has called you, who has provided for you, and yet you casually turn away and go back to other lovers, to other things that you try to seek satisfaction from that you can, you can only get from God. And the The Bible says in the Psalms that those who make idols become like them. There is an inherently destructive thing about idolatry when something, when a good thing, even a good thing, turns into an ultimate thing. And you pursue it so much that it causes wreckage in your life. I mean, we see that in a physical sense with someone who's caught in an addiction, That whatever they are addicted to is so important to them that they'll do anything to get it. And yet, the the result of that is it essentially destroys them. So we see the pain and separation of separation and isolation because of sin. But then we also see the removal of shame and disgrace. Go back to Isaiah 54. Verse 4 and 7 and 8. Again, these are long sections where where there's different metaphors and images that overlap. But in verse 4, you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. In overflowing anger, for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you. I will gather you. Those are God's promises. This is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore to the waters that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. Notice how he draws back to the Noahic covenant. And he says, God made a promise that he would never again destroy the earth with the waters of the flood. Just as he made that promise, I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. How many of you have heard the phrase, time heals all wounds? 
Time heals all wounds. I mean, that, in a sense, is good advice because we, if we're struggling with difficult things, we can say, just, just give it time. Don't focus on it. Just, just let time pass. But time heals all wounds is not the full picture of God's heart. The full picture of God's heart is love covers a multitude of sins. By his stripes we are healed. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. He was a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. He was one who we esteemed him not. He had no appearance that we should desire him. Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. So friends, are you stuck in memories of pain or memories of sin or memories of someone who said, I'm ashamed of you? Some of us have heard that from family members. You know, I'm ashamed of you. I'm ashamed that you did that. You should be ashamed of yourself. How can a child calculate that in their mind? We get stuck in shame. We view ourselves or have convinced ourselves as being unworthy of God's love. And God says, you will forget the shame of your youth. My covenant of peace shall not be removed. Look at the contrast in the text there. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion, with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you. In Hebrews chapter 2, verse 11, it says, Jesus is not ashamed to call them his brothers. Jesus is not ashamed to call us his brothers, he who took on human flesh. So what does God really do with shame? He absorbs it himself. He takes the reproach on himself. Jesus bore our shame. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2 says, He disregarded he scorned the shame of the cross for the joy set before him. Let me just read a short uh, bit of an essay talking about false guilt. Uh, this is by an author that I, I followed for a while. I think he had a radio program uh, in years past, Kirby Anderson. He says, The Bible clearly teaches that Christ's atonement was for our sins. Sin is any attitude, belief, or action that constitutes rebellion against or transgression of God's character. What do we teach the young kids in Good News Club? A sin is anything we think, say, or do that breaks God's law or makes God sad. Nevertheless, he says, our atonement must be made by someone with clean hands and a sinful life. Christ, of course, fulfilled that requirement and died in our place for our sins. Nevertheless, someone with false guilt seeks a form of self-atonement. We should feel guilty and we should feel a sense of shame for sinful behavior. But the problem comes when we feel guilt and shame even when a sinful action or attitude is not present. We tend to use the machete of false guilt to trim the weeds back in our spiritual lives. If I can do enough things right, if I can control this, then no one will know how bad and how weak I am. This performance-oriented lifestyle is a way at hacking at the weeds in the soil of illegitimate shame.
If we blame others, we manifest a critical spirit. We blame or we hide. When we feel false guilt, we tend to want to blame others or blame ourselves. The solution is for us to embrace Christ's atonement and accept what he did on the cross for us. Christ died once for all that we might have everlasting life and freedom from guilt and the bondage from sin. I hope that encourages you today. That Christ himself has taken our disgrace, our shame, our sin, our guilt upon himself. And then the last picture that we have in this chapter is the picture of safety and abundance. Look at the text in verse 11, chapter 54. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. And your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. There's a picture of a strong city, of a, of a well-fortified, beautiful, strong city. And then there's a picture of victory against one's enemies. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me declares the Lord. There is a picture of protection and victory against enemies. In our lives, not primarily physical enemies, maybe. But God's word is that no weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. How do you refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment? Because Jesus answers for you. He stands next to you and he says, no, this one belongs to me. Satan, the accuser, you have nothing to say because I have taken their judgment upon myself and I have given this person everything. I have given them the righteousness, God's righteousness, imputed righteousness, free gift of righteousness. Let me close with this, the words to this song. It was a popular a uh, song on Christian radio a few years ago. Jeremy Camp is the artist. He says, There will be a day with no more tears, no more pain, no more fears. There will be a day when the burdens of this place will be no more. We will see Jesus face to face. I can't wait until that day where the very one that I've lived for always will wipe away the sorrow that I've faced, to touch the scars that rescued me from a life of shame and misery. This is why I sing. There will be a day he will wipe away the tears. He will wipe away the tears. There will be a day. The Bible talks about the day in the new heavens and the new earth where there will be no more mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. Revelation chapter 21, behold, God says, I am making all things new. 
the reason we are touched by the Christmas story is because it is tangible evidence of God's word in Revelation. Behold, I am making all things new. God is making you new if you are trusting in Christ. He is making everything new. Our hearts, our minds, one day we'll receive glorified bodies. Amen. That will be new. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this passage. Lord, I do find myself sometimes um, inadequately expressing just the, the beauty, the mystery, the, the, um, the comprehensiveness of all of these images in Scripture of you, Lord, removing any shame or disgrace. You, Lord, taking upon yourself the punishment for us. And so may we recognize that you have made with your people a covenant of peace. That Christ, he himself, is our peace. He is the Prince of Peace. No matter whether we are Jew or Gentile, no matter what land we come from, no matter where we were born, Lord, you have yourself made peace, given us peace with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you for that. In your name we pray.